text. John 20 is where we'll be if you have a Bible. I'm Mike Stroh, one of the other pastors here. I want to add my welcome. Members or guests, either here or online, we want to welcome you. It's such a joy to gather and worship on Easter morning. But if you were to describe Easter, this Easter for you personally, using only punctuation marks, what would you choose? Using only punctuation marks, how would you describe this Easter for you personally? Maybe this Easter is a comma for you. Maybe it's enough to make you stop for just a moment, to pause, maybe to think or to ponder, but by lunchtime, things will have moved on. Or even by donuts, things will have moved on, right? I shouldn't have mentioned donuts again, I've already lost you. Maybe today feels like a period, a full stop, just maybe an empty ritual that doesn't seem to connect with your actual life. Maybe you're in the middle of a struggle. Maybe you're mourning a loss that feels final, that you can't see beyond that period. Maybe this Easter for you is a question mark. I mean, what's the big deal anyway? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Why does it matter? Wherever you are, I trust this text in John chapter 20 has something to say to all of us. In John 20, we see that the disciples began that first Easter morning with a wide range of feelings. We've walked with them this week through their final days with Jesus, from Palm Sunday to the Last Supper and to the cross. And this day, this Easter morning for them, started out as a period. Jesus was dead. All their hopes, all their expectations, gone forever, as that stone was rolled into place. And then... News of an empty tomb turned that period into a question mark. But now on top of their heartache, Jesus' body is gone. There's confusion on top of their grief. But then something happened that changed that question mark to an exclamation mark. Something that radically changed the world. Something that radically changed the lives of these disciples. We'll see this morning that the resurrection changes everything. And that may be the greatest understatement of all time. Because the resurrection is at the heart of what we believe as Christians. Without it, you have no Christianity at all. But if Jesus really rose, as his followers claim, then everything has already changed. Our relationship with God, the purpose and mission of our lives today, our hope for the future. All of it. All of it hinges on the resurrection. We could go on and on for days and days about the resurrection's impact on the world. But I want us for just a few minutes to zoom in, narrow our focus just a little bit, to consider the resurrection through a very personal lens. In our text this morning, we'll see this first Easter primarily through the experience of one person, Mary Magdalene. I hope we'll come away with a greater sense of how the resurrection changes everything for you personally And for us gathered here together, let's bow in prayer as we turn to God's word. Our Father, we've walked with the disciples this week from the Last Supper into the darkness and the sorrow of Good Friday as their Messiah and ours was put to death and buried. But now give us the faith to walk with them from darkness to the light of Easter morning and so be transformed. In the name of Jesus we pray. 
Amen. We'll look down again at John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. John 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Mary Magdalene was one of several women who followed Jesus and even helped provide for his ministry from her means. Luke tells us Jesus had cast seven demons from her, so understandably she became a devoted follower. Magdalene means she was from Magdala, a town near Capernaum in Galilee. And in these final days of Jesus, while so many of the other disciples had fled, had scattered, Mary Magdalene stays with Christ. She follows him all the way to the cross. She watches his crucifixion. And now she follows him to his place of burial. And this is where we pick up the story in John chapter 20. John, the writer, knows, he notes that it's still dark. Mary and the disciples are still in the darkness of Good Friday. So for her, the stone being gone can mean nothing good. Remember, for the disciples, this story has ended already. It's ended definitively with a period. So try as best you can to put yourself in their shoes. No expectation at all that your Messiah dying was part of God's grand plan. No. Despite that Jesus predicted it. It wasn't part of their understanding, let alone that he would rise from the dead. No, things have gone terribly, terribly wrong. She's coming to the tomb, not at all wondering, you know what? Jesus did say something about dying and rising again. What if? No, we don't see that here in the text at all. She's devastated. She's sorrowful. And to make matters worse, the guards are gone. The stone is rolled away from the tomb. Verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Do you hear the desperation in her voice? The period now turns to a question mark, which is worse, by the way, because now there's confusion heaped on top of her grief. So it'd kind of be like if we went to the freshly dug grave of a loved one to pay our respects only to find the headstone toppled and an empty hole in the ground. Can you imagine? That's what they're going through right now. To Mary, it was bad enough her Messiah was killed, and now his body is gone. They can't even pay their respects. They can't even honor him properly. So she runs to find Peter and John. John here is called the one whom Jesus loved, a title traditionally thought to be John, pointing to their intimate relationship, their friendship together. But look at all the running. It's frantic. She goes to find Peter and John, and then Peter and John now start running. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Swiss artist Eugene Bernand painted the scene like this. What Bernand captured so well here is the range of emotion on both faces. John's the younger disciple, wringing his hands anxiously. Peter is still reeling from the shame of his betrayal of Christ, and he's he's clutching his chest. I've always tended to imagine this scene with these two men running together, with at least some measure of joy, with at least some measure of anticipation. Could it be true? We may see that a bit in this painting. But I think that's reading back into the text what isn't there. 
Remember Mary's desperate news? They've taken the Lord. His body is gone. And verse 9 will remind us in just a moment, they were not at all expecting him to rise from the dead. John's a younger man, so he beats Peter to the tomb. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Peter, as we would expect, he barges right in, right? He wants to see things for himself. And John includes these little details, like the face cloth lying separately folded by itself, as he would have tried to capture every detail he remembered. And I think we're meant to see the contrast here between the raising of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Do you remember the story? Lazarus, Jesus raises him, and he comes stumbling out of the tomb like a mummy still wrapped in his grave cloths, and he needs help even just to get those things off. Not so with Jesus. Jesus passed right through those grave clothes, neatly folding the face cloth to the side, as one might do who has no need of it anymore. And since these two men were there to see it in the text, this evidence would be admissible in a Jewish court. Their testimony would be very significant to ancient readers. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John follows Peter to the empty tomb. I love the simple wording here. He saw and believed. No further elaboration. He saw and believed. What he saw, what John saw, stirred up faith in him. Could it be that the Lord has risen from the dead? I think it's starting to dawn on him. He's starting to remember some of the words of the Lord Jesus and connecting it with what he is seeing. But it seems like this is still a fledgling faith. They still didn't connect it with the scriptures. And Jesus' own words about his resurrection, they're still not quite connecting the dots. Evidently, Peter is still on the fence. Something miraculous may have happened here, but it's too much for them to take in. So I love verse 10. Then they went home. Then they went home. They just witnessed the greatest event in human history, or at least evidence to support the greatest event in human history, and then you go home. Well, Peter, what do you say? It's been quite a week. Especially for you, Peter, but no judgment. I don't know about you, Peter. I feel like I could use a nap. A little siesta is in order. It seems strange, doesn't it? Then they go home. But let's, let's cut these guys some slack. This is quite a bit to take in. We have the benefit of looking back, right, with the whole story. These guys are living it in real time. Plus, they didn't think people rose from the dead, if you can imagine that. They didn't think that was a thing that happened. In the ancient Near East, only the Jews believed in a resurrection. Nobody else did. Only the Jews believed in a resurrection, but that would come at the last day. They must have understood Jesus' words about his own rising from the dead in that context. Yes, Jesus, just like Martha said of Lazarus, we know he will rise someday later, but not now. They never expected their Messiah to rise first, to lead the way. This wasn't part of their paradigm. This is a whole new thing. And so John and maybe Peter have some vague sense of belief, but they're not sure what it all means. They're certainly not sure what to do next because they don't even evidently say anything to Mary about it. They just 
walk out of the tomb and head home for a nap. So Peter and John exit stage left. Thank you for your ministry. Okay. The story now returns to Mary. Mary's now left alone at the tomb. She's still distraught. There's no possibility for hope. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So Mary now sees two angels in the tomb. Evidently, they weren't there when Peter and John went in. Two angels appear right where Jesus' body should be. We have to wonder, Mary, do you notice that you're talking to angels? I mean, what's the usual response to an angelic visit in Scripture? It's trembling fear, even worship. Maybe these angels are disguised to look like regular people. Or maybe Mary is so overcome still with her grief, she can't see what's right in front of her. But they ask her, woman, why are you crying? It's a pretty strange question at a gravesite, isn't it? Weeping is pretty normal at a grave. It would be expected. But the grave of Jesus is different. And that's what these angels want to get her to see. The angel's question is meant to wake her up. Do you get the sense they're saying, woman, why are you weeping? Hint, hint. Look around. But still, all she can see is her grief and her confusion. Still thinking, Jesus' enemies must have stolen his body. But the angel's question was to get her to see that if she had connected Jesus' words with what she is seeing right now, she shouldn't be weeping, she should be shouting for joy. But she still can't see beyond the period at the end of this sentence. Her grief, her fears, her confusion... They have taken away my Lord. What are you feeling this morning? What are you bringing with you to Easter morning? What struggles, what grief, what fears, what doubts are you wrestling with? Can we bring that by faith to the empty tomb this morning? Can we bring our struggles and our griefs to the empty tomb and even better, have a look inside? Can we let the angels ask us the same question? Why are you weeping? The good news of the gospel never minimizes our struggles, but instead completely transforms them so we see everything in a new light. The resurrection of Christ is no shallow positivity. It's not just put a smile on your face no matter what is going on around you. No, it's telling us that everything has been made new. Everything is transformed. The new creation that Jesus started with his resurrection is meant to extend one day to all of creation. Not just at some future day, but to start that here and now. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Notice the gentleness in the way God reveals himself to Mary. First, there's an empty tomb. Then there's angels. And then Jesus himself. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now Jesus appears. It's almost comical how she doesn't recognize him either. 
He asked her the same question the angels did. Why are you weeping? But he adds another. Whom are you seeking? Again, empty tomb, guy that looks kind of like Jesus. Whom are you seeking? Hint, hint. Look around, Mary, right? Whom are you seeking? This parallels the beginning of John's gospel. The first recorded words of Jesus are, what are you seeking? The resurrected Christ, whether we recognize him as such or not, is who we are all looking for. And he asks us the same question. In the end, we're all looking for him. Even when we're going off a hundred directions in life, our hearts are desperately longing for him. Longing for that relationship with God we were created for. So in that sense, that painting of Peter and John points us in the right direction. This is the posture we should have when approaching the empty tomb, leaning in, wringing our hands, clutching our chest, desperate for it to be true. If you're here this morning in the sanctuary or you're joining us online and you don't know what it means to put your faith in Christ, you don't know Christ personally, I want you especially right now to hear Jesus' question, whom are you seeking? And if you don't think you're seeking Jesus in your life, it's only because you haven't yet seen him clearly. As we've walked through the events of Holy Week this week together, we've seen the love of Jesus for us, giving his life that we might have life. Deep down, we all desire this true peace, this true and lasting hope that can only be found in Christ. And so if you don't know Christ, your first step is to believe. Like John in the empty tomb, your first step is to take a step of faith. You don't have to have it all figured out. John sure didn't. But take a step of faith toward Christ and find him faithful to meet you exactly where you are. Please let us know. If you're here or online, please reach out to us even today. Let us know if you have questions about faith in Christ and what that means for you. But look back at verse 15. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Oh, Mary. We like Mary, don't we? Because she's so much like us. It must be the gardener, right? Any possibility but the one staring her in the face... But how appropriate that Jesus' tomb was in a garden. As N.T. Wright reflects, Mary's intuitive guess that it must be the gardener was wrong at one level and right, deeply right, at another. This is new creation. This is the beginning of it. Here he is, the new Adam, the gardener, charged with bringing the chaos of God's creation into new order, into flower, into fruitfulness. How right that where the first Adam failed in a garden, the second Adam, Christ, claims victory. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Here's the moment. Here it is, right here. Now Mary sees. It took only a word from her Lord, just speaking her name, and everything changed. Her fear and doubt and grief and confusion, all of it gives way right here to hope. She turns and proclaims, teacher, it's you. The period and the question mark are gone here, right here in the text. You can see it for yourself. There's the exclamation mark. Because the resurrection changes everything. Everything we thought we knew about the world 
is now totally seen in a different light. Death gives way to life. Creation gives way to new creation. Here's another painting of this scene. This one by Rembrandt. Notice, if you can, the contrast of darkness and light. The darkness of the tomb against the brightness of the sunrise. And here it is a bit closer. You'll notice Jesus in his gardener disguise. No wonder she didn't recognize him, right? He's disguised as a 17th century gardener. The broad-brimmed hat and spade, you'd never know it was Jesus. You'd never know. It's actually pretty common in Rembrandt's day for artists to depict the ancient subjects a little bit closer the way they're dressed to their own day. But there's something strangely fitting about that, isn't there? We all tend to miss Jesus in our own way, in our in every age. But notice the light. Notice the light dawning on Christ and just partially on Mary. Her face is half in light and half in shadow. This is what I love most about this painting. So many artists have depicted the following moments in our text. Rembrandt chose to paint this moment of realization. The moment of tension, of impending drama. The very pivot point as her body turns and she just begins to realize who she's looking at. The light is only partially cast on her face. I feel like I can relate to Mary at this moment. Can you? We live so much of our lives in this tension moment. Somewhere between fear and faith. Somewhere between confusion, grief, and hope. Fully devoted to Christ, but only beginning to realize the impact of the resurrection on our actual lives. This is us, brothers and sisters. This is us. Our face is half in light, half in shadow. Like Mary, how often do I miss the presence of Christ in my life? How often do you? We can be so tied to our earthly perspective, we can't see how God could possibly be at work in our circumstances. We're so confident in our certainty, in our view of the world, that we can completely miss Jesus Christ. An empty tomb? Hey, his body must have been stolen. A man who looks an awful lot like Jesus standing right in front of me next to the empty tomb? It's got to be the gardener. That's the only logical explanation. Financial setback, relational conflict, a struggle in school, at work. God must have stopped blessing me. God's not present anymore, and so I need to scramble and change my circumstances. I mean, notice how Mary takes control of the situation. She knows what the problem is, and she's ready to take care of it. Tell me where they put his body, and I'll handle this. I'll handle this. Mary, 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 slow down. Take a breath. Open your eyes. Maybe Christ is present, Mary. Maybe Christ is present in a way you can't even begin to imagine. He's present and at work. And maybe in the midst of our struggles that we are bringing with us to Easter morning right now, maybe Jesus Christ is present. Maybe he is at work in a way that we can't even begin to fathom. So the invitation of this text is to hear the risen Jesus speak your name. To receive his provision, to receive his grace, because he's got it covered. 
He's got it covered. He conquered death. So whatever we're bringing this morning, he's got it. He's got it covered. We're invited to open our hearts further to take another step into the reality of the resurrection. Because the resurrection changes everything. It's meant to. But often we're so busy holding on to our fears and our doubts, our certainty, our comforts. We live day to day, if we're honest, as if the resurrection never happened. But Mary let all that go. As soon as she heard her name, everything changed. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary is set off on a new mission. It's unclear why Jesus tells her, don't cling to me. But it seems connected with the task at hand. Mary, there's no time to waste. You have a job to do. And she went and did it. She had come in the darkness of that morning, still weeping, saying, where have they taken my Lord? And now in the light of the morning, she's running from the tomb, announcing, I have seen him. I have seen the Lord. And this is the message at the heart of Christianity. This is the message that separates our faith from every other faith in the world. Because we don't follow a dead teacher, we follow a living Savior. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. Our entire faith is based on this truth. This truth that turned the world upside down. This truth that turned the fearful disciples into fearless Martyrs. In the ancient world, women were not considered reliable witnesses. Yet the gospel accounts place Mary Magdalene, a woman, just one woman in this gospel, a woman of questionable reputation. They place her as the first witness of the risen Christ. She's the one to go take the message to the apostles. Not a detail you'd want to lead with if you're trying to fabricate an event like the resurrection. Not a detail you'd lead with if you're trying to start a new religion. But in the resurrection, God is superseding all of that, isn't he? God says, I'm starting something new. This is new creation. Look at this new reality that Christ achieved, a new relationship with God. What does Jesus say? Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father My God and your God. No longer just servants of God. Though that would have been enough. Now because of Jesus we are reconciled as beloved sons and daughters. And there is total forgiveness. Those men that ran and hid when Jesus needed them. Deserted him at the cross. They're brothers. They're brothers. And this new relationship gives us a new purpose and a new mission to share this hope of life in the risen Christ. He gives us his provision to do it, to begin living into that life now. And this new mission points us to our sure future hope. Because Jesus rose, we too will rise. Paul declares, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, 
those who belong to Christ. Christ led the way in the resurrection. So one day when he returns, the dead in Christ, as Paul writes elsewhere, will rise and those living at that time will be transformed. The new creation that began on Easter morning will be true of all creation. So until that day, we find ourselves with Mary in this tension moment, don't we? This moment of impending drama. Our faces half in light, half in shadow. I don't know about you, depending on the day, some days feel like mostly shadow. Our grief, our confusion can overwhelm us. Some days the question marks and the periods seem like the end of the story. But remember, our Easter invitation is to lay all of that down in front of the empty tomb, to step just a little bit further into the light, to hear Jesus say our name, to live daily in light of our reconciled relationship with God, to live with this new purpose and mission, equipped with Jesus' provision to actually experience his life, this hope, this peace, as we look toward our sure future hope. In other words, the invitation of Easter is to live as if Jesus really rose from the dead. Would you pray with me? Almighty Father, who in your great mercy gladdened the disciples with the sight of the risen Lord, give us such knowledge of his presence with us that we may be strengthened and sustained by his risen life and serve you continually in righteousness and truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.